Welcome back to the Rooksell podcast. Um, if you're new to the podcast, my name is Farouk. I am the host of the podcast. I'm a physiotherapist. And in today's episode with a special guest, if you've read the title, you know it's about psychology and a bit about nutrition. This person is at an interesting crossroads between these two areas. And let me tell you a few things we talk about in this episode. We talk about social media and eating disorders, anorexia. Generally, we talk about eating disorders and how the food is actually not the culprit in eating disorders. I was actually surprised about that one, how it's in the brain. But listen, to find out a lot more about that. What else do we talk about? We talk about this psychological relationship we have with food and how that actually impacts our eating habits more than we actually know and more than we actually think. Also, one more thing. I won't give everything away. Don't worry. So you can enjoy the episode regardless. We talk about how certain nutrients and certain minerals are actually very beneficial for the brain. And if you want to find out which ones they actually are, you got to listen to the whole episode. But let's get into the episode. You may have seen her or you may have heard of her about on Instagram. She goes by the name of Food and Psych. So I'll let the episode go on. So ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Kimberly Wilson. So welcome, Kimberly, to the Rooks Health Podcast. That's today's episode. It's a very, very interesting episode because we have someone very special. I say this every time for every episode. <laughs> There's someone special on. But today, actually, because this is a someone who's at the crossroads between nutrition and psychology. So I'll let Kimberly introduce herself so I don't butcher any of her titles and give her the full credit she properly deserves. <laughs> that was a nice, nice little uh, way out there. Um, I don't know if I have any special titles. Uh, my name is Kimberly Wilson. I am a chartered counseling psychologist. I have a master's in nutrition. And my work really sits at the intersection, as you say, between food and psychology. And that includes the role and uh, utilization of food and nutrients in mental health prevention and treatment. I also do some work with disordered eating and um, eating disorders, but also I look at uh, functional gut disorders, particularly IBS, because IBS is uh, a very stress sensitive disorder. And a lot of people don't appreciate that when they think about IBS. When you, Most people, when they get gut symptoms, for example, end up thinking that it's, it's just about the food, when actually there's a big psychological component to IBS in particular. So mm. I try to help people understand essentially that gut brain, gut body connection and uh, try to take care of themselves in an integrated way. Mm. It's very interesting. And since we're on the topic of IBS, I'm not, I don't know a lot about IBS, but I know it's quite prevalent because every time you see in the pharmacy, you see a lot of medication for IBS. So is it, how much of a problem is something like that and how to the common people and so everyone in general, mm. is it, do people, a lot of people suffer from IBS? Yeah, it's it's incredibly common. And the estimates put it at around 10 to 20% of the population suffer with IBS symptoms. So yeah, it's a really high number. And, um, and it's a functional gut disorder. And what that means is that um, with functional disorders of all kinds, where there's 
impairment to the function of the organ mm-hmm. um, or the system in this case without there being evidence of organic disease or obstruction. So uh, people can have colonosc- colonoscopies um, and scans and their, their colon or their gut would be clear, but still they would have bloating, pain, diarrhea, constipation, a combination of these factors, um, which really impair your daily functioning and just your quality of life, right? Mm. Um, and so when we think about functional gut disorders, and, and they're incredibly complex. Yeah. And again, so with IBS, people often, and, and it's very understandable, will often think it's about the food. They say, well, like, maybe I've got uh, an intolerance or maybe it's gluten, maybe it's dairy. Those are kind of the big main culprits people tend to think about. And then they'll start cutting out those foods from their diet, which actually can end up doing more harm than good, particularly mm. if yours is a, you know, a stress mediated IBS. So you might be cutting foods out of your diet, becoming more anxious about the foods that you're eating, actually being more stressed. And it's the stress that you feel at mealtimes which is triggering your symptoms, not the food that you're eating at mealtimes, which is triggering your symptoms. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting um, but incredibly common disorder. Uh, I guess, so on that last point, and that where it links in with your mental side as opposed to just being about the food that you're eating. Um, so I remember one of the things I want to talk to you about was on mm. that was that relationship between food and your mental health. How significant is it? Because obviously playing off the devil advocate we know it we know there's a there's a link there's no in the basics there's a link between what you eat and your mental state but how it, how important is it and what how much significant is that role okay so obviously i'm biased <laughs> i call myself food and psych um, after all but I, I think it's hugely undervalued the the importance of it in lots of different ways right so the first one which and it's obvious when you say it but most people don't think about it is your brain is made of food right your brain is made of the nutrients um the macro micronutrients that come from the foods that you eat and in particular your brain is 30 percent of it is made up of fats that you can only really reliably get through your diet, these omega-3 fatty acids from oily fish. Um, So they make up about 30% of your brain cell membranes, the outer wall of each of your brain cells, as well as about 50% of the retina. So these fats, which you can only get from your diet, are a third of your brain and 50% of your eye, right? (laughs) Kind of very slightly crudely, but... um, And so if you're not eating those foods automatically fundamentally your brain is already depleted and not working doesn't have the optimal building blocks to work as well as it could do but on top of that things like b vitamins are needed to make you know people think about serotonin and you know can i eat things that will boost my serotonin well the things that i mean that's a very complicated question but um, (laughs) you you need magnesium and b vitamins to make serotonin so if you're not getting those foods then you won't even have kind of adequate production availability of these of, of these compounds. So there's one thing is, which is about the fundamental building blocks of the brain, which comes from food. Okay. The other, which I think gets less appreciation, is the psychological relationship we have with food. Um, we all okay. have a psychological relationship, an emotional relationship with food, whether whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, <laughs> um, because so much of our early psychology 
um, our, our early sense of ourselves, our early relationships mm-hmm. are mediated through food, right? Feeding times as a baby comes with the physical intake of nutrients plus the contact, plus the holding, plus the gaze, plus the singing or the, you know, the lullabies that your parent might be singing to you. It's the whole package and you cannot separate that. And those memory traces get pulled together in, in the baby's brain. So we have this very, very close connection psychologically between food, nutrient intake and comfort, safety and soothing. So and there are, you know, there are other things, but there are so many ways that food and psychology are just so closely linked. Um, you know, we know that 50% of people who present with morbid obesity have suffered uh, physical, sexual or emotional abuse in childhood. So there's this real way in which either for distraction reasons, for self-soothing, for self-care, comfort eating, that food becomes a way that people like a coping mechanism yeah it's a coping mechanism and so the you know it's it's really closely interwoven in consideration i think ah so speaking on eating disorders i know that is a very very prevalent um thing and it can come in different ways if i'm am I right to say that you can have an eating disorder of eating too much and you can also have an eating disorder of eating not enough so you can either one of them still count as an eating disorder and as you said, so what's actually happening in someone's head when they have, uh, when they're having these type of things and what's, why is that prevalent? And as you've just said, as you mentioned, if I didn't even know that fact, that's a very interesting statistic that the obesity is directly relates to, um, childhood and things like that. And the psychology trauma you went through in childhood. Yeah. So eating disorders, diagnosable eating disorders, things like anorexia, the average, um, prevalence in the population is somewhere around 1%, which is quite a common figure you find in lots of mental health disorders. Mm. Um, And I guess the the big thing that I always want to get across when we're thinking about problems with eating and food intake is that it's, it's not about the food. So everybody wants it to be about the food. You know, you're just, you eat too much, you're too hungry, you're too greedy. If the issue is um, compulsive eating or you're obsessed with being skinny, you just want to be thinner. If, if the issue is restriction, there's a big group of other disordered relationships with food in between, you know, so it's not just under or overeating. It can be, um, you know, you can be of average weight and still have problematic psychological relationships with food you can still see food as, as frightening and scary or needing to be controlled um often people with bulimia are of average weight which is why it's so underdiagnosed in the population um people will just look at you and think oh you look perfectly healthy and won't know that that person is is binging and purging um so it's it's not about the food and and so often so for example with anorexia there's a, a very common personality constellation which is about perfectionism which is about uh avoidance of conflict uh wanting to be seen to be a good nice person um a lot of there's a lot of compliance um and and obedience associated with anorexia type disorders and across the spectrum these are disorders of emotional coping you know it the one of the things about food mm-hmm. and if we think about the idea of control, so if we think about anorexia, that what it offers is 
is a very clear and neat way of constructing your day or your life. And it's often a response to chaos and internal emotional chaos. Um, And it's often a way of, if you think about particularly counting calories, you know, there's something very neat, tidy, routine, and and perfect about counting calories, Mm -hmm. right? If I take in this amount at that amount, I come to a very nice, neat number. Okay. The maths, you know, maths is not ambiguous. Maths is always, you know, <laughs> we have one answer. Exactly. Um, and that's the contrast to, to emotional messiness, right? So, you know, everything else feels like it's chaotic. Everything else feels like, um, you know, it doesn't make sense. Mm. But this feels very neat. This is very understandable. This is a, a framework for, for which... I can use to contain my anxiety. Um, and so it's, we need to always be thinking about what is this person trying to cope with? You know, not it's so rarely actually about, um, you know, being thin, if we're thinking about anorexia, it's more about being seen as acceptable or likable or wanted not wanting to be rejected. There's so much more underneath it. And, and I just, I wish people were a bit more, compassionate to to those sides of it yeah i can imagine so the and one thing i've heard of seen a lot that i think is very common across people listening is the idea of uh, social media and it's that's effects on things like this but i don't know how much that is a thing i can see you already know it so you can tell me what you think about that <laughs> oh yeah yeah so um the thing is because i say this and we talk about disordered eating and eating disorders but i think it's it's incredibly rare nowadays to find anyone who has just a relaxed relationship with food right someone who isn't eating to some external plan whether it's something that they've downloaded off an influencer or eating to a particular regimen eating to some sort of exclusion whether that's wheat dairy meat you know there are very, very, very few people who can just, you know, sit there and go, hmm, I'm hungry. What do I fancy? You know, what do I want? What does my body, what is it asking for right now without actually approaching mealtimes with a set of rules and, and, and boxes that need to be ticked? Okay. So, and, and I think what's extraordinary about social media is that it's almost normalized the use of the way that you eat as a signifier of your identity, right? So you'll see it. You'll see it on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. People will say, if it was, they say, uh, uh, Jason Smith, I don't know, banker, vegan, and you're like, <laughs> huh, that's that's interesting because if if I were, you know, asking for your CV, you're, you know, you were looking for a job and I was asking you to tell me about your experience. I wouldn't be expecting you to tell me your dietary choices as, as part of that, right? But there's a way in which, do you know what I mean? Like, on social media, it's become normal to tell absolute strangers how you eat. And, and this is what I mean about food being, having meaning and being more symbolic than just what it is, because actually we use the way that we eat as a shorthand for our values and our tribes, right? Yeah. So if I say I am a carnivore, what I'm telling you is I belong to this group of people who eat in this particular way and have this set of beliefs. It's, it's just a marker of belonging. Similarly, on the other end of the spectrum with veganism, like what I'm saying is that, 
often it's used as a, a marker of ethical beliefs. You know, I'm an ethical person. I care about the planet. I care about animals. And this is who I am. But we use the, the food, the way that we eat, as a shorthand for our beliefs and our identity. Um, it's incredibly strange when you stop and think about it. <laughs> now I'm thinking about it. You got me thinking now as well <laughs> about that concept of projecting that you are, uh, either, as you said, vegan, adding that little thing in your title. Uh, for, for me, myself, if whoever's listening to this, people already know this from previous episodes that I, I eat a more plant-based diet, meaning most of my stuff come from plant-based. And it was a thing that happened over last year. doesn't mean I've excluded completely meat out of my diet. It just means I eat significantly less than i used to eat and i was trying to promote people and say you know obviously i'm not a uh, trained nutritionist so i wouldn't claim to be but i always try to say at least try and eat more vegetables try and eat more fruits that's the one thing i always try to push at the very least because i'm not going to be the person to give you a nice little dietary plan that's not my area of specialty that's not my core competency but if you get what i mean it's just pushing that little little bits of eating more fruits and vegetables there's someone no, that's my that's my, that's my <laughs> <flat mate. laughs> yeah that's fine and um, yeah well I, exactly but there's a difference there's something strange about our our desire and our need for exclusions right because it's not enough for some people for increase for an increasing number of people to just say eat more vegetables people want to say does that mean i should only eat vegetables you know is are there some vegetables i should be eating and some vegetables I shouldn't be eating, you know, you know, and they want, they want rules. People want rules. And I think this is a response more generally to feeling that life is a chaotic mess and we don't have any handle on anything. I like the realness, the real, <laughs> everything is chaotic and that's really true. And that's very true. And it is in a sense, whenever people say it is what it is, kind of it's the way life is and everything. And so if we're talk, well, now we're still on the topics of uh, food and health, and if, I know we touched on uh, anorexia, but another very common and prevalent one is depression and anxiety. And mm. I know that I know that scale because a few people, you meet a lot of people who say that they have anxiety. I don't actually know what that means in a sense that specifically what does having someone who has anxiety actually mean? Because mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes, I don't know if it's been used on a very broad spectrum as well as depression as mm-hmm. well. Or maybe feeling sad, maybe mixed with depression. I noticed clinical depression, that's a whole other thing we have to, when you've been diagnosed, but I don't mm-hmm. actually know what it means actually anymore to those two terms because they've been used widely. Yeah, no, and I think you make a really good point, And I think it's a really valuable observation that, and it's a very mixed story. So, on one hand, so broadly, we have increased recorded rates of what these, what are called the common mental health disorders, that anxiety yeah. and depression. Um, and partly that's going to be, you know, better recording and people, you know, we've spent a lot of time improving the conversation and trying to reduce the stigma. So more people do feel more able to speak up when they're feeling distressed. Um, but at the same time, um, and as a clinician, I really try to, to, to hold up, to try to prevent this as much as I can, um, is a kind of meaning creep you know, where a word starts to mean much more than it used to mean. And certainly um, what I worry about is the the pathologizing of normal emotional responses. So that for some people, and I think partly it's because 
again, social media has democratized our health information <laughs> and everybody has an opinion. Yeah. Not everybody is, you know, experienced. And, you know, sometimes people are trying to, to be helpful. I don't think it's malicious or, or, or malintent. They're just not particularly well-informed. And so people might be experiencing normal nervousness, right? If you're going up to give a talk in front of a room full of people and you feel nervous, that's completely normal. That's not an anxiety disorder. Uh, That's not having anxiety. That's being nervous, right? Um, If you feel sad because, I don't know, you're having difficulties life. in your relationship because life. <laughs> I, feel, I, I feel sad at times. It's, 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 sometimes exactly. something happens in life and you just feel a bit sad. And exactly. And, and, and that's fine. You know, you can feel sad without being depressed. Right. That, but I think that where these words have become adopted as part of the common conversation, they've started to lose some of their clinical meaning. And, and I worry because one of the things about human psychology is that you can prime yourself for certain experiences. Yeah. And so if you have the belief that anytime you feel sadness, this is one of the reasons that I hate um, hashtag good vibes only because it creates this idea that everyone's <laughs> like constantly perpetually happy, happy all the time, 24/7. Um, which is just ridiculous. Uh, you know, so if, if, people have this idea that if I ever feel sad, you know, I should feel happy. I should feel grateful. I should be enjoying my privileges. I should be making the most of my existence at all times. That any time that they feel a bit sad, they think there's something wrong with them. And it's like, no, sometimes you just feel sad. And, and sometimes there's no particular reason for that. Sometimes it might be literally something you've eaten has disrupted something, has made you, your brain be, feel a bit, you know, not great. And, and you feel sad for a bit. And, and if the more you worry about that, the, wet, the worse you're going to make it. So, yeah, I think it's a mixture of things. And I think certainly there's a, an overuse of some of these actually clinically important terms. Words, yeah. And I think just as you probably know more than me about, especially as a physiotherapist, some of these things when there's an over, when you say a lot of these words and you push it out there either way, it kind of skews the numbers and it almost makes the people who actually have some of these things lumped into a sort of people who actually don't have it. But I can imagine it's, a, it's not something you can, I can ask you and say, so what does it mean to have someone to have anxiety or have a depression? That's a whole, I think most of it is contextual depending on one person and it's holistically looking at that person. Sure. But I mean, there are, you know, there are some things and we tend to think of something as problematic psychologically when they interfere with your daily living. Right. So if you're a bit nervous giving a speech or meeting new people, that's not a problem. If it gets to the point where you don't want to leave the house or you're not going forward in your job or you're avoiding, um, you know, good situations things that could be fun for you that's when we might start thinking that there's something problematic happening here so it it is contextual because some people will be able to tolerate more than others you know some people have a better tolerance for this for physiological distress and that's what emotions are um but it's the point where we think about something being a disorder is where it starts to impair yeah. Your, your daily functioning yeah that's a that's, that's a very most important thing as a physio when i was learning is always 
how is it affecting their daily life? Are they able to still function? Because when they can't function in life, when if you if you're as you said, if you're not being able to go out or you're not enjoying it, and you're actually starting to see your health deteriorate socially, financially, and everything, that's okay. when it becomes a bigger problem. And one thing I know in in this new uh, I say it's in 2020 now with uh, the rise of online jobs, one thing that's very big on people is burnout. You know, burnout yes. and chronic stress. Like people are under constant amount of stress. Either I'm just gonna say this from a, what's it called from an avid observer standpoint of things like when you see a lot of things and you see this idealistic lifestyle and you see a lot of things and you're trying to achieve those things and you're pushing, which is good. I do appreciate it. But sometimes burning out even regular day to day jobs and you're burning out. People do burn out. It's a big thing we talk about in physiotherapy mm-hmm. that it's, it's going to happen. Even as a student, you may eventually just burn out through a daily amount of stress. How prevalent, how, how much of a problem is that in the actual world? I, I think it's, well, I think particularly right now in coronavirus lockdown, I think there's a risk of burnout just from that persistent stress of the anxiety and the worry and, and what's going to happen and when can I get out and when can I get put back to my normal life. I have... I think stress is so important in relation to, to brain health that it has a whole chapter in my book and, mm. and a quiz on whether you are burned out or not, because I think it's an increasing, an increase, and it will be an increasing problem for people because we have this huge kind of veneration. We, we love to be busy. Like we have this huge value on, you know, making gains, hustling, pushing, you know, <laughs> 5am club is best in my 4am club. You know, no one can wake up early enough to, to get ahead. <laughs> so I, so so I wake up 5am. I wake up 4am. I wake up exactly. 3 I don't even sleep, you know. I just, I just don't sleep. Exactly. I just go straight um, to work again. Just, just lying. Like, I used to work in a law firm and it used to be very, very common. I, I think they have, they've stopped it in the last few years, but it used to be common just for them to have the big city firms to have beds in the buildings because you weren't going home. Um, and, and, and so we have this real glamorizing and, and, and glorification of busyness and constant activity and just a, a real denigration and a lack of value for rest. Um, and I did a, I had to do a session on my Instagram recently because I did a video where I was just explaining like, during lockdown, you might be feeling a bit more tired and that's because there are these other psychological demands that you're experiencing. More vigilance, more attention, you know, more anxiety. That has a physical energy demand so you'll feel more tired, so you might need to sleep more, right? And I thought that was just going to be a straightforward little, here's a little bit of science information for you and, and go on. But in the comments, so many people said, oh, thank you for this. Now I feel less guilty for having a nap. And where I'm from having a nap is like <laughs> like being a queen like, it's luxury to be able to have a nap right um but people were saying that they felt guilty about it so I had to do a session where I was asking people why why do you feel guilty about having a nap um or sleeping longer and people were saying because I haven't earned it you know that all of my rest has to be earned through activity and I was like, you're, you're literally treating yourself like, I don't know, like a, like a factory, you like know, a machine, that I have to put these, yeah, exactly. just like putting these inputs in before I, and I need to have a certain number of outputs before I can turn the lights off and, and go home. And it's like, no, you are a human. 
you know, and your body is responding to things that cognitively and consciously you have no idea about, right? Your brain is yeah. processing hundreds of thousands of pieces of information at all times, plus the rest of your body doing all sorts of crazy stuff that you could never understand. At all. And, at all. <laughs> and so if you feel tired, the, the most compassionate, most respectful thing that you can do for yourself is to rest. But we don't value rest enough. Um, yeah, yeah. I think uh, rest is uh, on my on my on my Instagram. The Rooks Health. I put out a thing and said you shouldn't be trying to be aiming to sleep for this amount of hours. I think seven to nine. That's the general standard guidelines. And mm-hmm. people do, normally people sleep less than that, but they think it's okay and it's been normalized because the, the thing that's normalized is the the more you sleep is an assumption that you're lazy and you're you're just you're sleeping way too long. Which I I, I can't understand. It. I'm just like sleep is a very important thing and. Yeah. people say i sleep five hours and i'm fine i'm constantly sleeping five hours and i'm fine i know i know that's already horrible because i i think i did some research and i was reading about i can't remember what it's called you'd be able to tell me but only a very small percentage of people can actually have this short sleep cycle or something like yeah. that it's about it's about one percent of the population yeah. are that that level of short sleeper that four hour level of, of short sleeper and the thing is that sleep the mammalian brain, so this is shown in animal studies, when mammals are chronically underslept, the brain starts to eat itself. Wow. Like, it's, this is no laughing matter. This is not a joke. <laughs> like, this isn't about being lazy. But there is an evolutionary reason that we sleep. Like, when we think about it, sleep is massively risky for humans, right? You're unconscious, you're immobile, you have no sense of what's happening around you. You're incredibly vulnerable to being predated in our evolutionary kind of landscape, yeah. right? Um, it's an incredibly vulnerable time for humans uh, is, is when you're asleep. So the fact that it's persisted throughout our existence as a species tells us that it's, it, has, it must have a really important function. Otherwise, nature wouldn't have left it in there, right? Um, and the functions we think... And certainly from my perspective, thinking about brain health are, so one of the things that happens when you are in deep sleep is that the gaps between your brain cells, so the synapses, separate, they open up by sometimes up to 60%, around 40 to 60%, mm-hmm. and inflows some fluid, which cleans out the daily buildup of kind of toxic metabolites. And this is really important because the buildup of those toxic metabolites, and one in particular is a protein called uh, amyloid beta. Um, and when that builds up, it can block the signals between your brain cells. And when that happens, the brain cells, because they only, because your brain's like, use it or lose it, if it's not getting messages, those brain cells will start to die. And that's why the buildup of amyloid is one of the key features, is one of the key characteristics of Alzheimer's disease. And we know that sleep disorders precede Alzheimer's diagnosis. So sleep is protecting the structure and function of your brain. And the idea that you're going to be more productive or better off or more successful on less sleep is just, it's it's totally flawed logic. Yeah, it's bananas. (laughs) It's ridiculous logic. And, but one thing I've I've always heard is that because you see a lot of YouTube videos about one, one if we, since we're still on sleep, is that there is no long-term consequences of, obviously, people sleep deprive themselves for a very short amount of time. 
are there any long-term consequences or is this one of those things where because as you just said now i've actually didn't realize that the sleep lack of sleep was a predecessor to dementia is it something that if you're constantly starving yourself of sleep for a long period of time you are more uh what's it called susceptible in a sense um so longer sleep deprivation is a problem but actually we know that even one or two nights of uh, a chronic lack of sleep can shift the function of a lot of your tree cascade into a pro-inflammatory direction and we don't want that because that kind of inflammation is is deleterious to lots of parts of your health and we and that actually takes a long time to come back to baseline so you really don't want to be doing it very much at all. And if you do, you know, if you do pull an all nighter, then you absolutely want to be back in bed as soon as possible and kind of building back that, that sleep debt. Mm. And since we're still on sleep, how important is a sleep, sleep hygiene? Cause so I have a, what's it called? It's a whoop strap and it basically helps me track my sleep, tells me how long I sleep for. It tries its best to tell me how long I sleep for. So it kind of, I found that it kind of lets me behold myself accountable for my hours of sleep in a sense that mm-hmm. I try and pursue myself to actually sleep more. Cause in the morning it will tell me, okay, you only slept six hours today. Try and sleep more. And it has all these things like sleep <laughs> debt. And if obviously if I sleep six hours today, it'll tell me that, Oh yeah, you've worked out very hard today. How much you, you should try and aim for a lot, this amount of sleep for tomorrow. And it all, it's always giving me ridiculous numbers, like 10 hours of sleep, nine hours of sleep. I was like, it's a lot of sleep. I try and get it as close as possible to what it says, because I know sleep obviously is good for you, but I'm just like, it adds on, it adds sleep hygiene. It tells me sleep at the same time every day, try your best within that same time frame. And are these, are these actual valid uh, points or are these just marketing tips? <laughs> So a couple of things. Um, Most sleep researchers don't recommend consumer sleep trackers Mm. um, because they don't come close to the accuracy or validity of what's called polysomnography, the type of sleep tracking that they use, the gold standard sleep tracking that they use in sleep research. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one thing. The second thing is what you might be slightly at risk of is what's called it's being dubbed orthosomnia which is that people with sleep trackers whether they're watches or rings or whatever are starting some people are starting to get anxious about not getting perfect (laughs) sleep right so you know they wake up in the morning and like oh no and you got like 20 percent deep sleep and it should be 30 (laughs) percent and and often a, we don't know how accurate that is, but B, the ang- being anxious about sleep is going to get in the way of having Actions, yeah. Um, and so usually uh, it's the thing people just need to be aiming for because there's nothing you can do really about getting deep or good quality sleep other than, you know, avoiding arousal and activation before bed, don't have coffee, don't have a big meal, you know, yeah. don't smoke before bed, all of that sort of stuff. Um, that's going to affect the quality of your sleep. But really what you want to be making sure is, is yes, routine is, is true. Your, your body and your brain likes routine. Um, you know, your body has its rhythms throughout the day and the 24-hour circadian rhythm, and it does like you to keep to that. And, you know, wound healing is affected by circadian rhythms, for example. So um, sticking with 
a good routine is going to be best for your body. Um, your, your brain doesn't like any sound that is inconsistent or threatening. So if there's going to be any sound around, it should be kind of consistent, low level hum, you know, uh, don't fall asleep with TVs on and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and a dark and cool room. So quiet, dark and cool, essentially as if you were trying to sleep in a cave. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's really and if you can get those on a consistent basis and you're not doing anything that's going to interfere with your sleep then your body should your body wants to sleep right your body wants to be in equilibrium it wants to be healthy so it will what it will shift into a good pattern and if you can keep to that then most people will be fine mm. okay and so we're talking about that i mean we talked about a lot of our chronic stress and burnout and the work before i before i go into that luckily i forget a lot so i I've, now you've told me i'm going to be more aware of it not to focus heavily on this sleep tracker yeah, i'll probably do it. more a lot more re- look, look a bit more into it but i'll take your word for it <laughs> so far you haven't said me any said me wrong <laughs> but since we're going back to if we could go back to burnout stress and all this stuff, i think because they're all related mm. so what are good techniques because I know one of the big things with, with the rise of alternate medicine and alternate therapies and things like mindfulness, yoga, uh, what's it called, meditation and things like this, do they actually have any credence in science? Is it actually evidence-based or are they mostly just, uh, what's it called, uh, opinions and experience and, oh yeah, I started meditation and I noticed this or I started doing yoga. And, oh, I went to an ashram and it changed my life. Exactly. Um, exactly. <laughs> so... So yes, yes, and uh, and some other kind of um, qualifying statements. So the first one is that there is lots of really good um, data around mindfulness and meditation for brain health, um, and lots of studies have shown that regular, consistent meditation, for example, can increase the volume of your brain. It can make your brain grow, and it can improve the connections in your brain and particularly connections in your brain between the prefrontal cortex. So the, the higher thinking, rational, goal directed reasoning part of your brain and the amygdala. So the threat detection center. And the idea is that when you've got better communication between those two parts of your brain, you're much more able to tolerate worry, anxiety, stress, and also that that front part of your brain. So your amygdala is like always on the lookout for a danger. Um, and that's basically its constant job. And then it needs messages from the front part of your brain, the the PFC to say, Oh no, 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 don't worry. It's cool. Relax. Chill. Mm. Don't worry about it. Um, and so meditation can improve the communication between those two parts of the brain. And that's really important. The issue is that the middle of a crisis is not the time to start to learn how to meditate. (laughs) (laughs) And and I think this is the problem that, again, with the democratization of information and people, you know, more more people talking about it, which is fantastic. But what the the message seems to get out is, oh, are you stressed? Meditate. Actually, (laughs) if you're panicking, the last thing you want to do is sit down and think about those panicky thoughts. But like, that is, that is not going to help. Um, so the time and, and what I talk about in the book is about, is about prevention and building in resilience 
into the system in as many ways as is possible. Through nutrition, through exercise, through meditation, through improving your relationships, through learning how to tolerate your emotions, through improving your financial situation so that you're reducing stress. And building that resilience into the system so that when you get to the point Mm -hmm. of stress, panic, crisis, you've got all the tools already there, ready to go. So the the time to get into meditation is when things are good, good, right? The time to get into meditation is when things are calm, when you have the time to practice it, when you have the time to get into a routine with it um, and try different forms of it because not everybody can sit down and be yeah. still. Some people need Close more active and... forms. Exactly. Um, but that's when, for example, if you hit a crisis, it'll be available to you because your brain will go, look, we've got this is which tool do we have? Which coping mechanisms are we talking Which coping mechanism do we pick out? Oh, it's this one. Let's use that. We're familiar with it. We're calm enough. Those neural networks are already embedded and we can use that in the crisis to soothe ourselves. So yes, there's evidence. Yes, it's valuable. But I think people need to know that we need to start thinking preventatively early in, you know, earlier up in, in, in the life cycle so that you have these resources to hand when a crisis happens. Yeah, I think, I think that's a very good point. Is It's like preventative medicine in a sense of preventative treatments, uh, not reactive, but you're proactive in a sense that you already have everything, doing all these things so that when it comes, you're already ready and you're not hit as hard. Because you will, everyone, I think it's, I think this coronavirus could say everyone, but some people and obviously deal with mm. it. It's how you react towards it and how you deal with it. That's the most important thing. I don't know, because I, I, the reason I ask is because I know some of the things that, like placebos is a big thing and some things are more or less placebo and there's a debate. I also myself, I struggle sometimes to think because with a placebo effect, and if you're listening, placebo effect is similarly like, it's like, a, it's like when you give a sugar pill to someone and tell them that's a uh, that's medicine. It's, I think they use a lot of placebos for trials and if you, you give one group the actual medication and you give another group nothing which is equivalent to nothing and sometimes the people in the, the group they gave nothing will be like oh my things were healed and everything everything is feeling great now so i struggle sometimes with even with treatments as well to think that if it's working should you mm. stop it or i think yeah. I'm ethical or mm. i think that that's a big argument in medicine which is and and there have been so many trials where they will give people pretend knee operations and people will feel that they have less pain and less arthritis in their knees. Um, you know, so often the placebo effect and the placebo effect we think often makes up around 30% of all treatment effects, even in drugs and interventions that do work. You know, 30% of it is placebo because we want it to work because the brain is so powerful and underestimated in terms of what it's capable of manifesting in the body. Um, and so I think it is, it is a bit of an ethical dilemma. There's, you know, one group that will say, hey, if it works, if it's relieving pain, if it's cheap, <laughs> you know, and it's <laughs> saving the health service money, then why not? Whereas the other is the question about, you know, deception and how fair is it to mm. make someone believe that they're receiving something when they're really not. Um, and I guess that the difference between that is that, you know, is the utilitarian argument versus the kind of rational, moral argument. Yeah. So I think it's tough. Um, yeah, no I'm not sure I have a conclusion. Yeah. No. 
there's no easy answer to that. I already, I, I had a feeling already because someone may, may be listening to this and be like, oh, how can you give someone nothing and justify that? Well, someone else will say, well, it's working because I think it even as busy or one thing on my placements and on learning basically is they tell you that I realized earlier is that sometimes doing, if you, if, even if I come in as a physio, someone comes in with knee pain or they come with an injury, over time, they will naturally heal already. So me actually adding something, it may be doing something or it may not be doing anything if I'm being honest with myself, because you find a lot with NHS long backlog of times, you find that some people have already, maybe they give you an appointment in six months for uh cough strain mm-hmm. six months your cough strain if it's not a major thing it would already heal so it's already healed by itself mm. whereas if you come in early as well and me doing my stuff and giving you this this and this may heal it faster or may heal it at the same time as you not doing anything so it's uh, is that balance and it's obviously mm. it's never easy it's not an easy uh thing to split between but so as a wrap this first session there's going to be part two but and then little, little things that people can, that you can advise people on, that, or you do advise people on, that they can to improve that health and their the relationship with food and their psychology. Because I don't think that link has been brought, as I think you're one of the few people I've actually seen use that link between nutrition and food. I always see either, it's either this, either you're talking about food and you forget about nutrition, sorry, the other way around, you forget about psychology and the mental aspects, or you're talking about mm-hmm. one of them. And no one is bridging mm-hmm. that gap. So what can you get the people well, there you go. Um, so I would say the first thing is to just hold in mind that we have an emotional relationship with food. And unlike other animals, humans use food in non-nutritive ways. So most dogs, cats, elephants won't eat for emotional reasons. You know, <laughs> They will respond to hunger cues Here. and so forth. <laughs> but you know, we have birthday cake, we have family food, we have grandmas who won't let you get up from the table until you've eaten another piece of something, (laughs) right? We have all of these kind of cultural, familial, social, historical associations to food. Um, And that includes the psychological and emotional. So I think if people are thinking about their attitude to food and how they how they eat the first thing i would say is to bear in mind just the idea that you have an emotional relationship with food and from that point just be curious be curious about when you eat and why you're eating you don't have to change anything to start with just be curious yeah just be aware because you cannot get to meaning without curiosity. So curiosity is the first part. And I, I would just invite people to just be curious about why is it that I have this thing every day at 11 o'clock? What is that about? What is that habit about? What is it giving me? Or why is it that I will not eat that food, but I'll, I'll look at it on social media? You know, what, what is that telling me about how I understand and relate to food? And then from that point on, you know, that's where you can start getting into questions and associations. Where did I learn this? Who did I see eat like this? What messages did I get about food when I was growing up? And what effect are they having on me now? I think that's a very great way to wrap up because I've always heard this. Everyone who I talk to someone who is knowledgeable in nutrition, they always say this, that when you have, snacking is also something that is probably ingratiated into your head. It's actually mental because you may not be hungry, but just because your brain thinks, at 11 o'clock, after, just before lunch and after breakfast, you should have a little quick sugary snack or have something snack. 
and then it's just normal. You don't even need it to half the time, but you just your body, your brain is just like it's been conditioned. Let me sound smart. Is it like a Pavlovian response or you're trained? <laughs> Let me sound a bit smart in psychology. <laughs> There's lots of, you know, aside from the, the psychological, emotional stuff or the emotional part of it, food marketing is incredibly powerful, yes. right? Hugely powerful. And because, again, from an evolutionary perspective, we tended to grow up, you know, evolved in, in environments where food was scarce or unreliable, you know, eat now because you don't know when, yeah. when the food is coming. Exactly. And so... We, and we have, we, we have kept that programming, except now we're in a perpetual, perpetually abundant food environment. But, so we're in, a, in an, an environment where there's constant access to cheap and nutrient-poor nutrient but calorie-dense foods with programming that says eat whenever you can. So, <laughs> you know, wherever you can get that food, just keep shoving it exactly. in. Exactly. So part of it is this evolutionary mismatch between our, our programming and the environment that we found ourselves in. Um, and, and so this is, again, one of the arguments when people talk about body weight and composition and it's just, you know, calories in and calories out and you just need to try harder. Well, actually, there's huge parts of the reasons that we eat that are driven by our genetics, our evolutionary programming and our environments. And if people don't know that, then they're not equipped to kind of push against it. Right. So if I don't know that the 17 adverts for McDonald's that I've seen on my commute to work are triggering a hunger response, because hunger in humans isn't just about lack of calories. It's about mm. eating opportunities and messaging. Um, if I don't know that that is exactly what those McDonald's adverts are intended to do, then I'm going to get to work and think, actually, maybe I am. Maybe I could do with a, you know, <laughs> whatever. I like I can't remember the menu off the top of my head. Because I'm a bit of yeah, so we're in the same one now. I don't know what you're trying to do. You're trying to think of a, a, a name for this. <laughs> I can't, I can't even remember. But exactly, like you know, this marketers wouldn't spend the budgets that they do on food marketing if it wasn't effective. And that's it. And that's effective. Thanks a lot. And if they make sure to stay tuned for the second part of the conversation. I know you're enjoying this conversation because I am, if you're listening to this, because I'm enjoying it a lot. So see you next time. As you heard from Kimberly, this is not the last you will hear from her. It sounds funny, but if you want to show some support to the podcast, please subscribe to the podcast. It's very much helpful. If you're on Apple Podcast, leave a review. I five stars, preferably. I appreciate five star reviews. And if you're on Spotify or wherever you are listening to this on, please just you know subscribe so you don't miss another episode and put on your auto download so you get the episodes straight so you don't have to wait one second. And also check out the YouTube channel and subscribe to that one as well. I appreciate that a lot. That one is a, a new project and it's growing. And the last thing is instagram and twitter rooks health on instagram and twitter much appreciated uh click engage do your thing you guys have been amazing but i'll let you all off the hook and i'll let you go but thank you till next time on the rooks health podcast